Praise you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise and for the declaration that this song has celebrated. These few moments, Lord Jesus, we've been singing about your power to intervene in history and in our lives to resurrect us unto newness of life. We confess as your church this morning with these songs and as your word has declared to us that history bowed the knee to the will of the sovereign God when the God who spoke this world into being became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, we thank you that you did not count the glory that you had as the eternal Son, something, Lord Jesus, that would need to be held on to, but you set it, Lord, you took on flesh and came and were humbled, Lord, and intervened in this creation, in the experience of humanity, declaring your gospel of truth, demonstrating your power to save, laying down your life as the once and for all sacrifice. And so we, your church, this Lord's Day, celebrate that because of your crucifixion, where you took on the sin, Lord Jesus, of the elect, and were crucified for our transgressions, that you overcame as the Lamb. We celebrate, Lord, that in your burial, God, which was prophesied, Lord, that you declared victory over death. The Lamb has overcome. We declare, Lord Jesus, that you signed and sealed and delivered the resurrection of all the saints for all time, Lord. When you were raised from the dead, the Lamb has overcome. And we confess, Lord Jesus, that when you ascended before the Father, according to Daniel 7, you received your kingdom from the Ancient of Days, and you took your throne, and you sat down, and you began to reign. The Lamb has overcome. And we declare, Lord, with 1 Corinthians 15, and all of Holy Scripture, Psalm 110, that now, this day, each enemy of yours is being systematically, incrementally, through all history, placed under your feet. The Lamb has overcome. And in your procession, as your victory train of exploits gets longer and longer through the course of history, we confess one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb that all of the faithful will join together and like a mighty crescendo in a waterfall of praise, sing your praises that you are so worthy of because the Lamb has overcome. Now this morning as we open your scriptures, I pray that you would open our minds to comprehend that you would stir our affections to love and appreciate the word therein contained. And I pray that it would have a transforming effect in our lives to burn away as so much dross the sin which easily clings to us, Lord. That it would draw unto salvation those that may fellowship among us who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord. Bless our time today under fruitfulness for your glory and kingdom expansion. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open the Scriptures together today. I hope that we take it, that we do not take this lightly, but we consider with reverence and fear and gratitude the great gift of God's Holy Word delivered to us. Turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to Psalm 63. Today is our Psalm a Month series, second Sunday of the month, and it brings us to Psalm 63. The title of which is, or in the title we find it's a psalm of David, and it was written in a time of his life where he himself was in a wilderness. And so today, the title of this morning's message, therefore, is Wilderness Worship, a song for the wilderness. 
If you are there in your text, in your Bible, stand with me if you would out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, Psalm 63. If you are able, I would ask you to stand again as we respect the words before us today and listen to me as I declare God's Word in Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, beginning in verse 1. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 6. When I remembered you upon my bed and meditate, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, for those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the infallible, inerrant, and holy word of God. You may be seated. The consequences, circumstances, historical occasion behind Psalm 63 are not unfamiliar to us even in our psalm series. David has often found himself in a moment of emergency and anguish, of pressure surrounded by his enemies of all types, shapes and sizes through the course of his career as magistrate as we find him in this psalm. Verse 11 denotes the king. Speaking of David, we presume as the subject here spoken of in his words in the third person, and also in the beginning we find him in a wilderness. So exile and kingship, exile and authority or rule don't often go together, but in David's life, at least in this instance, they seem to uh, attend his way indeed. So once again, the anguish of a soul who trusts in the Lord provides an occasion to showcase something, the attributes and power of the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in full display in David's hour of need. Yet once again, as he pens his beautiful praise song in the midst of his difficulty. The beauty and grace of David's writing in his darkest hour is testimony, in fact, to its divine inspiration. If you are in distress in your life, if you've experienced anything, even a slight bit akin to what David went through, your response is probably much like mine has been. You don't think about, how can I make a beautiful song out of this particular incident? You more think about pure survival, breathing in your next breath, getting through to the next hour, clinging with all your might to one thread of hope here or there, or maybe in desperation and anguish and and in anxiety, crying out and grasping, flailing for some means of security if you find yourself in dire financial straits, for instance. 
You're scraping together everything you can to, to make a, a, a payment on a bill that is due. Or maybe you have a severe physical ailment that you've gone through and you're calling all of the uh, specialists that you know uh, to contact and you're researching the internet and you're, you're scraping together the, uh, re- through reams of medical knowledge to try to find an answer to your plight. And the last thing again... In these circumstances, which is usually on our mind, is how can I turn this into a magnificent worship song? However, David's circumstance was different. He lived much of his life and all of his writing as it's recorded in the Psalms, in fact, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So his difficulties became the occasion for divine inspired truth to teach us where to run and what to cling to and what is featured by way of God's glory even in the midst of the darkest of valleys. The Psalms of particular elegance of theme and structure like Psalm 63 have served the church through the eons, through the ages, through the centuries, through millennia as unifying anthems. The ancient church father Chrysostom recognized this of Psalm 63 in fact when he writes and actually recounts some history in his day he says, It was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. Speaking of Psalm 63, there were eras in the formative years of the early church after Christ had came. The initial apostolic wave of gospel preaching went forth. Then second and third generation believers began to plant additional churches where the difficulty of their circumstances was such that it moved church leaders to simply prescribe singing Psalm 63 every single day. You might wonder why that seems strange. Well, perhaps it was because they realized their plight was similar to David's, and therefore this worship song in the Valley of the Shadow was a great soundtrack for them. And it was perhaps their lifeline as they cling to faithfulness and testimony of faithfulness to Christ even in the midst of persecution. A few weeks ago, we were preaching of the Hallel Psalms, that is the praise psalms that attended the finale of the Passover meal. These are Psalms 113 through 118, sometimes Psalm 136. We remarked about how these psalms provided timeless themes. And as a worshipful finale to the Passover, they introduced perfectly the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. We noted how fitting these were as they were the prelude to Christ's work of redemption, having no doubt been sung by Christ and His disciples at that Last Supper meal in the upper room before exiting and Christ placing His feet on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 26.30. We're reminded of this, that is the Christ-centered nature of the Psalms, all of them in fact, but specifically as it appears to us in Psalm 63, we're reminded of this. And again, when you think about how the Messiah is featured in the themes of the Psalms and the parallels between the Son of David and the, or of David and the Son of David himself are striking once again as we consider how Psalm 63 is perfectly suited for the events that immediately follow in the gospel uh, beyond that Passover night and then on to Gethsemane and Calvary and the rest of Christ's redemptive work. So with that introduction, let me give you a heading as we explore some of these themes. Our heading today is how need and supply showcase the glory of God. How need and supply showcase the glory of God. 
Verses 1 through 5, we see this perhaps described in two terms, thirst and satisfaction. How our need described as thirst poetically and how its satisfaction under this desperate circumstance showcased the glory of God. Verses 1 through 5, second major point this morning, exile and comfort. How the need of exile, how the desperate condition of loneliness and distance from that which would otherwise grant us security and assurance, and then how God steps in and magnificently supplies comfort under these conditions, showcases again His glory. And our final point this morning as we consider this psalm will be verses 9 through 11, betrayal and triumph, or betrayal and exaltation. How in our closest of associations and relationships, humanly speaking, fall apart and fail us. How God bringing us through and proving Himself twice and many times over, exponentially so, the friend that we ever knew that He could be beyond our wildest expectations. How this is an exalting and triumphant thought for the believer who may be betrayed by his closest companions in this life, but to be called the friend of God is more than compensation for the loss of what you thought was a loving relationship in the here and now. First of all, thirst and satisfaction. Back to our text this morning. Let us consider verses 1 through 5. Our psalmist David opens in verse 1. He says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, notice the language that is employed. O God, you are my God, earnestly. There's that, by that term earnestly, represented his need and the emergency and the difficulty that he is in. It moves him to passionately and, and incessantly and zealously seek out the Lord. He describes his condition as one who's lost in the desert, who has no idea by way of map or GPS or otherwise where the next oasis is. And not only is his throat parched, but his mind is tortured with the thought that I can't see any water in the distance, and unless it is supplied for me, I will surely die, perhaps in hours, perhaps in moments, as the sandstorms of the wilderness of this life begin to choke the vocal cords and constrict my life systems, and I begin to faint. He says, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I wonder if you've ever looked through, say, an encyclopedia or done a Google search for some of the wastelands, the deserts, the wilderness areas in the Near East. It's almost like a different planet. It's as if you're looking at a moonscape or Mars in many of these locations. Not so much as one perseverant tree clinging to a cliff for dear life is found for miles in some cases. And if you imagine yourself just dropped by helicopter in the center of such an area, the feeling of despair, of loneliness, of imminence of death and your own frail, frailty, your own mortality would likely wash over you in a wave of depression and discouragement. This is the kind of environment that well describes the situation that David found himself in. And this is the poetic imagery from which he's drawing to illustrate his situation. David's circumstance, however, principally speaking, is not unique. Commentator Christopher Wordsworth reminds us that in the history of redemptive revelation, 
and as he's speaking in his commentary on this psalm, that wilderness experiences have often attended the way of God's people. Remember, if you will, Hagar, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the maid uh, that, uh, and wife of Abraham when she was exiled and had to go into the wilderness, having fall, fallen in disrepair relationally with Abraham and Sarah and so on, and she's heading out into the wilderness. And she cries out in despair, surely I will die. She's watching over her son. She and Ishmael are exiled from the place of safety and provision. And they are now at the mercy of the elements around them. And the beating sun and the blowing wind and the desert around them seem to, de- seem to decree their imminent death. And Hagar cries out to the Lord in this wilderness. And in Genesis 16, 13 through 14, we find that by God's miraculous provision and supply, a spring breaks forth in the wilderness. This reminds us of God's people in the wilderness wanderings as well for 40 years. They were destitute and wandering. They had to rely exclusively on the sovereign hand of the Lord to provide for them in the wilderness. And twice over, he did so by a fountain that sprung forth from lifeless soil, from a dead rock, and supplied them the needed, much-needed life-giving water in the midst of their wanderings. We think of Moses who was exiled in the wilderness for a time, quite a time indeed in Exodus 3, 1 through 4. It served this time, this era by God's providential hand served to reveal to him God himself who was revealed in a burning bush. The wilderness time became a great source of supply. His thirst and lack for that which he maybe enjoyed in Egypt and now missed like like the provision and the excesses that his princely position would earn him. Perhaps the influence and the power and the authority and the prestige were all stripped away and he felt some sense of loss. But now, consider the privilege of of coming face to face with the holy God revealed to him in a burning bush. His thirst for what life could not satisfy at this time was overwhelmingly compensated in his experience of the Lord face to face, as it were, at least in this form. Think of Elijah. Wordsworth reminds us of him as well, declaring great victory over Jezebel and the pagan forces, 1 Kings 19, 4 through 18, and then he runs away and he's exiled in the wilderness. And his frailty, humanity, and his great need is demonstrated as he begins to slip into a depression himself. But what happens? Source and supply comes to him in the form of an angelic messenger from the Lord who encourages him, who feeds him in the wilderness. Thus his thirst and his loss and his lack and his sense of his own weakness prepares him to, re- to realize the satisfactory provision in Christ, as it were, all the more. The church itself Revelation 12, 6-14 is described as a woman in exile, receiving the sovereign provision, nourished in the wilderness by God's own hand. And time and again through Scripture, we see this theme that David experienced firsthand, often attends the experience of other believers, and indeed we'll find in the course of our study, Christ Himself. Notice the poetic language that is used to underscore these truths. There is an earnest seeking There is a thirst of the soul. There is a flesh that is fainting until it receives the rejuvenating life of God. And this supply and this source, this satisfaction for the thirst that these words are reaching to describe is better than life itself. 
reading on in our text, verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Though the satisfaction that David received in the wilderness may not have been the first thing on our request list, I want deliverance from my enemies right now, please. I would like to have financial stability and security right now, please. I would like to have every reason to be anxious and worrisome and, and, destitute, and uh, in fear of, destitute, of being destitute uh, just washed away right now, please. These are often at the top of our wish lists in prayer. David, however, placed something else above these things that relate to our mere existence in this physical realm. He said God's power, His glory, and steadfast love are better than life. David knew that this exile in the wilderness of Judah was worth every bit of anguish and suffering if it would grant him greater appreciation for realization of God's power, His glory, and His steadfast love. Thomas Brooks, another commentator, in speaking of this text, records the following or states the following. He, speaking of David, doth not say, My soul thirsteth for water, but my soul thirsteth for thee. Nor does he, David, doth, or nor doth he say, My soul thirsteth for the blood of my enemies, but my soul thirsteth for thee. Nor he doth not say, My soul thirsteth for deliverance out of this dry and thirsty land where no water is. And he does not say, My soul thirsteth for a crown, a kingdom, but my soul thirsteth for thee. This thirst that David has, he understands, runs far deeper than his immediate physical circumstances. Divine authorship of this psalm is testified to in the fact that he does not cry first for deliverance from his physical enemies, as the commentator notices and observes, or for even water and bread to keep him alive for one more day. But instead he says, My soul thirsts for you. If I have you, I have everything else. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's immediate pressing trial serves as a metaphor for him to remind him of his desperate dependence on God Almighty. So I looked upon you, he says, in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because, of your, because your steadfast love is better than life. And a brief reminder, it cannot be overstated. It's repeated so often in the Psalms. This steadfast love, again, refers to the gospel in the Old Testament, the gospel in the Psalms. The Hasid love of the Lord is His covenant-keeping loyalty, His absolute loving kindness, His never-failing care for those whom He loves, has set apart as His own, and has promised to carry through this life on into the eternal one. When David considers these things, he says, My lips will praise you. And in fact, he can offer a worship psalm, Psalm 63, in his most pressing hour of need. He goes on, verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
Turn with me to 2 Samuel 15. It seems that perhaps the situation and circumstance, if it isn't this one directly, it would certainly fit the bill, that David is experiencing his life that gives rise to this psalm may well be when his son Absalom turns against him and he and a contingency of his court are forced out, again, uh, yes, into the wilderness of Judah. And he is now, having assumed the throne and ruled for many years, now finds himself once again in exile. And instead of all of the creature comforts that his kingdom affords him, he is out living and surviving on the land, and trusting in the Lord to preserve him. And under these conditions, it seems appropriate. That is probably the historical background behind Psalm 63. 2 Samuel 15 lets us in on the occasion of this psalm, perhaps in verse 13. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Of course, Absalom was David's son, who had rebelliously staged a coup against his leadership, had assumed the throne, had convinced the hearts of the people, led them away from the anointed king, had tried to set up uh, in an insurrection against God's anointed and was proving, at least by some measures, apparently successful at this time. Verse 14, Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and, re- and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And as the story progresses, we find where they are. For instance, in the chapter 16, verse 14, And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, And there he refreshed himself. Again, notes in the text that they're in a wilderness. The end of chapter 17 says, And David and the people with him were honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd were supplied to them for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in where? The wilderness. So we see in the context, in the biography of David himself, how these terms and conditions that gave rise to a psalm like Psalm 63 were true of him. We recount also, as we consider this, the intensely personal connection these circumstances forged in David's heart between him and his source of supply in the wilderness, or in any difficulty, his God, his Jehovah Jireh. Psalm 62, the psalm that preceded this one, notice how many personal pronouns and the possessive language that's used to describe David's personal dependent connection on the Lord. He says, For God alone, verse 1, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. He alone, verse 5, O my soul, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him, verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, my mighty rock. And he goes on. This language is reiterated in Psalm 63, 1, echoing the previous one when he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. The difficulties of David's trial forge within him an intensely personal relationship with his Lord. 
It wasn't a theological abstract theory. It wasn't a hypothetical. It wasn't a distant deism to which David refers to when he declares the sovereignty and the authority and the power, the attributes, the worth, the works, the glories of his God. No, he is speaking of one who supplied him personally in the wilderness in his darkest hour. O God, you are my God. Spurgeon reminds us by this language that David employs in Psalm 63, that David is speaking of his God by choice, by covenant, and by confession. O God, you are my God by choice. My will and my uh, has been bent. You have subdued me. I freely embrace, I give myself, I pour myself, I choose to follow you. The times in David's life where he chose otherwise, the Holy Spirit moved in his heart, repentance, and he chose after the Lord changed his heart and brought conviction through the prophet Nathan and otherwise to return to the Lord. Psalm 51 records moments like these. And, O God, you are my God, comes to the surface as we see David personally chasing the Lord, if you will, pursuing him, earnestly seeking him, thirsting for him, and fainting for him. God was his God by choice. Secondly, by covenant, the Lord himself had revealed himself to David. He had cut covenant with him. He had promised that there would be one to rule on his throne forever. And this is, in fact, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the son of David. And the son of David is the fulfillment of the covenant that was made to David. And David never forgot this. He understood that God, his God, was the one who made promises to him beyond David's imagination and power to fulfill. And that God, who is bound to him by his own vow, will not forsake him. And finally, by confession. And is not every one of David's psalms a glorious confession of the God who was his God, who is personal and who is covenantally bound to him and who is the only source, rock, salvation, security, assurance, hope, and fortress for any who are lost as David was. And we are certainly all lost in our sin. As we turn to David, let us turn to God as he did, that we would embrace God, our God, by choice and by confession and by covenant, recognizing that he has cut this covenant in the blood of his own son, and we can be adopted children of God, of the son of David, and, and brothers and sisters of the son of David himself because of his mighty work. Now, under thirst and satisfaction, we've considered how the poetic context illuminates the text. We've considered how this, uh, this uh, supply in the wilderness was true of David. Let us consider how it was also true of Christ. Very briefly this morning, let me read you just several scriptures of a wilderness experience of the son of David himself. David's life spoke in prophetic terms, often in the events, often in the words that he employed. Both the Psalms themselves and the narrative of his experience speaks to the son of David to come. And when we read of supply in the wilderness, we're reminded of Jesus' own wilderness experience in Matthew 4, 1-4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. This would be, in fact, the wilderness of Judah, would it not? That area surrounding Jerusalem where Jesus experienced a spiritual exile of sorts. And what was the purpose? To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You see the elements, do you not? There's a hunger, there's a thirst, there is a wilderness, there's a, a privation that Jesus himself as son of David is experiencing, but this is for a purpose. It says in verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And you see the temptation, do you not? The temptation is is to do the opposite of what David did. To think first and foremost about your physical well-being rather than the glory of God. To think about bread more than power, glory, and steadfast love. To think about your financial condition if you're in dire straits more than the power, glory, and steadfast love of Almighty God. To consider your needs personally and temporally more important than the glory of God, His power, and His majesty through the gospel declared through even sharing as we do in His sufferings as believers. But the son of David did not succumb to this temptation. Instead, he answered, and how did he do so? He'd said, in answer to the devil, it is written, verse 4, Matthew 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And great words to fight our own war against the devil and the tempter who would seek to rearrange our priorities, to put self above our Lord and Savior, our Psalm 63. So we turn to these words, we find, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. And I behold with David your power, your glory, and your steadfast love. And I confess, these are better than life. How supply and need both showcase the glory of God. We see this illuminated in Psalm 63. We see it true of David. We see it true of the son of David. May it be true of us. Second major point this morning, exile and comfort. How need and supply showcases the glory of God in David's experience in anticipation of how this is true of David. You can have your finger on Psalm 15, but let's consider our text again, this time three verses, Psalm 63, 6-8. David says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is a conclusion of the thought in verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And he is able to consider the Lord a satisfactory answer to his plight, even though he remains in exile as it were. When he remembers the Lord... On his bed. Notice that he doesn't consider himself satisfied after his bed is back in his palace with the fortified walls and the approval of the people and the success of the army, securing the conditions where he can lay his head on the pillow at night and rest assured he is in good safekeeping. No. He remembers the Lord instead upon his bed. He meditates on him even in the watches of the night. The watches of the night refer to regular schedules or a schedule where those who are among you must regularly wake up and be careful lest the thief or the enemy the surrounding army or in this case his own son rebellious as he was uh, bent to destroy his father and his kingdom might sneak up on you at the most inopportune times and so you must keep this watch in the night David took the occasion of sitting up say between three and five in the morning making sure listening closely to the snap of a twig, the rustle of cloaks or the clank of a sword in the distance, he made sure to use that time to meditate on the Lord. Not to shudder in fear at his own condition and his plight, but instead to cry out to the Lord and to seek Him, even through the night watches. 
You have been my help, he says, in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. We're considering the poetic context of this exile and comfort. In the midst of exile, he finds, that is David, a source of comfort. In the watches of the night, occasions for sleepless anxiety are transformed into opportunities to set the mind and affections upon the Lord. The shadow of the wings, this is amazing as David refers to this, it reaches beyond geographically specific locations, even to his exile in the wilderness. I submit to you anticipating what Christ will fulfill as he declares to the woman at the well in John 4. Remember the question, where is the centrality of worship uh, to be practiced? Is it on this mountain here or this mountain there? Now David, he refers to no doubt the wings of the cherubim. In this picture, when he says, verse 7, In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. We've mentioned this before. David knows where mercy is to be found. Where is the mercy seat of Christ? It is under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. On that mercy seat, there is mediation between those seeking forgiveness for sins and the law that testifies them laid up in the same place. David understands poetically and, and, and symbolically speaking that if he can be under the shadow of, the, of these wings, then he is sharing in the sprinkled blood of the atoning sacrifice covering his sins, providing mercy and safety for him. But the amazing thing is, is David is finding comfort in the shadow of these wings as it were, even though the Ark of the Covenant is not in his immediate proximity, even though he is forced to flee from Jerusalem. Even though he is not in neither the tabernacle, the temple hadn't even been built yet, nowhere close, in fact, to the place of uh, symbolic and ceremonial atonement where the sins of the people are covered, uh, temporarily speaking, by the work of the priest. Nevertheless, David trusts in the power and the shadow of God's wings to cover him even in exile. The poetic context is powerful indeed. David finds sanctuary in desolate places. And the last poetic picture that seems so powerful to me as I read is in verse 8. He says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, I have in mind this double grip. Look up here for a moment if you would. If you've ever seen someone in peril hanging off a cliff and the rescuer comes, the most secure grip of a person who's about to tumble into space to his own death is for him to grab the wrist of his rescuer, and the rescuer grabs the wrist of the one or the wrist of the one in peril, and that double lock is a sure grip. That's something of the picture we find in verse eight. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. A mutual double grip lock of salvation from the precipice of his own destruction. David finds this. He finds this in security from his enemies that surround him, even his own son, but far more than that. He finds this in the salvation of his own soul. God, through the shadow of his wings, and underneath there in the atoning sacrifice, has grabbed his wrist, and David has grabbed his, and now his God, God by again choice and covenant and confession, will never let go. And as he grasps him, he is assured of safety and comfort even in exile. This was true of David. And we find it again as we go back to his biography of circumstances that may have given rise to this psalm again in 2 Samuel 15. Notice some details in the text, verse 24 through 30. 
And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, notice, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. So at this point, David and company are in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. They set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king, so David, said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Amaz, uh, uh, Amaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. This is striking indeed. It underscores the point that I was making earlier, that even though David is separated in proximity from the ark, he nevertheless finds a source of comfort. You notice here that, well, in the experience of God's people, the ark and its presence among the people was always symbolic of the presence of the Lord, His favor, His protection. The ark of the covenant would precede them through the Jordan. The waters would split and they would go through the promised land. The Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines and the people were listless, aimless, and lost. Now, without the centrality of God's presence symbolically represented in the Ark of the Covenant with them. However, in this instance, David is exalting the Lord in the presence of mind to take comfort in his help, even though the Ark of the Covenant is going to be distant from him. This speaks to a spiritual reality that the Ark of the Covenant represented. David was one of those believers who, whose heart was finely tuned by the Holy Spirit to realize that the substance of God's favor and presence with man was not contained essentially in the ark. That was merely a symbol. But instead, the heart was the place of true residence where the Lord would inhabit His people. David was anticipating this uh, revelation that would further unfold in Scripture as he confesses comfort even though he is distant from the ark. Finally, under the second point, how do we see that this exile and comfort was true of Christ? Well, in our text that we're studying, we will begin again covering next week in Matthew 26. In verses 36 through 46, we find a moment in Christ's work as he approaches Gethsemane, where he himself as in something of an exile. He says, or he had preceded this moment by declaring in Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Christ is saying that he will be abandoned by his closest associates and loved ones and followers. The disciples will distance themselves from their Lord this night. Even Peter, in his closest confidence, can't be trusted. They will deny him three times. Verse 36, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, and, uh, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And so you see some of this disconnect, this distance, and this exile happening. And as he's praying, of course, the disciples fall asleep. Verse 41, Christ charges them. He says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, the second time he went away and prayed, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for a third time, saying the same words, and came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. David had his son. David's son was his betrayer who was at hand. The occasion of the authorship of Psalm 63, we presume. He was staying up through the watches of the night, lest he be betrayed by those who were close to him. Jesus himself is in a similar circumstances in his own exile. Judas, one of his own, will betray him shortly. His disciples do not stand by him during this time. He is in exile. He is the only one awake during the watches of the night. His disciples continue to fall asleep. Nevertheless, there is a communication, a communion with the Father between the Son and he himself, that is Christ, finds refuge, finds comfort, if you will, in the Father's will. Not as I will, but as you will. And so we see in the Son of David these themes playing out in the gospel. Final point this morning, betrayal and exaltation. Building on what we've said already, we conclude in the last three verses of Psalm 63, noting again David's immortal words. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Finally, David demonstrates that need and supply showcase the glory of God in his own experience, and this testifies prophetically of what Christ will experience as well in his work on Calvary and beyond. Though there are these moments of betrayal, where God has sovereignly ordained this trial for his servant to walk through, there is nevertheless a promise of exaltation and of triumph. David understands this, although by all external circumstances, it seems the most foolish thought indeed. He's on the run, the majority is turned against him, his son is his sworn enemy, and he is uh, escaping, the Ark of the Covenant isn't in sight, he doesn't have any means of supply that he can depend on aside from the sheer mercy of God. He's in the middle of nowhere, and yet he is speaking and singing of a day of triumph that will soon come. He says, those who seek to destroy my life, those who are his betrayers, shall go down to the depths of the earth. The poetic context is stark indeed. It, it displays these truths by contrast. Those who have the upper hand militarily, the strategic advantage, the will of the people, the will of the majority, the power of the sword, will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be, they will be proven unsuccessful, regardless of the number of chariots and horses and the will of the people they can assemble for themselves. Again, verse 10, he shall be given over to the power of the sword. Those who wield force against God's will will be destroyed by their own hand. Their weapons that they sought to use as powerful tools of rebellion will become their own instruments of suicide. They shall be, he goes on, a portion for jackals. And the picture here is that their death would be uncelebrated and 
and it would be so uh, widespread that there would be no time or no honorable burial, no time to dispose of the body, no honorable burial possible. But all of the enemies of God's sovereign will will eventually become so many bones and carrions spread across the very wilderness that David is running across right now, food for jackals, wolves, and vultures. And then this note of exultation, but the king, by contrast, shall rejoice in God. And using the term, he doesn't refer to himself as fugitive, exile. He refers to himself as the king. He says that he shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, meaning the precious few who remain loyal to David will share in God's victory that he will give his anointed one. Brothers and sisters, consider that lesson in our day. In a day of dark persecution and deep and animosity against the Christian church. The few that declare their allegiance to the Lordship of Christ will exalt in the final day. It may not be popular. It may not be a powerful position to assume, to associate yourself with the Lordship, the Word, the name of Jesus Christ. But if you do so, you're declaring your allegiance to the King, even in the wilderness of cultural depravity, of great persecution, of the mockery of neighbors, of the abandonment of your family, and even imprisonment and the sword sometimes historically comes to those who do so. But if they do, they will not become the portion for jackals, spiritually and ultimately speaking, but instead they will rejoice in God, and they will, will see, they will live to see the Lord's right hand do valiantly, the mouths of liars be stopped, and themselves exalted with Jesus Christ to rule and reign over all his enemies. We see that this betrayal and triumph was true of David. We won't turn there, but you'll remember 2 Samuel 18, 9 through 18, vindication was swift, tragic, dramatic, and absolutely glorifying to God. It doesn't matter if you are the own son, uh, son of the, or the very son of the king as Absalom was. It doesn't matter if you convince a great majority of the people that you are a ruler who is superior in power and wisdom. If you set your mind, your attentions, your ambitions, your affections against the will of God, what will happen to you? You'll find yourself being chased on a donkey, metaphorically speaking, through your own wilderness. Your hair will be caught on your uh, plans to rebel against God Almighty, you will find yourself suspended between heaven and earth. You remember how the, the end of Absalom, how his plans were ultimately thwarted? His hair caught on a branch, and he hung himself in his retreat, and David's general came and slew him. They threw him in a pit. They piled rocks over him. He became a monument to the foolishness of rebellion against the Lord's purposes, against the Lord's plan and will against the Lord's anointed. Suspended between heaven and earth, Absalom realized in that moment that there is no mockery of God that will ultimately be successful. There is no carefully laid plan. There is no strategic opportunity as a close friend lifting up his heel against his father or close associate and through that betrayal to ever prove successful. In fact, he will die. He will be destroyed. God's judgment will come. The day of reckoning will arrive. And for those who are unrepentant in that day, woe to them, woe to them. This is each and every one of us in our sin, is it not? 
One day, it is appointed for every one of us to die, and after that, the judgment. May our death not be catching our hair on that final day, on the branch of our own mortality being suspended between heaven and earth, and proving in our death, in proving in our death the glory of Christ when we are destroyed in our sin, condemned to hell eternal for our rebellion against the Lord. Turn to Him. Associate with the King. Declare your allegiance to the Sovereign and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ if you do not know Him today. Because even though we are a precious few, and even though we are often pressed down and persecuted in this life, there will come a day of exaltation. And that day, every knee will confess, or every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and great sorrow and despair, but not the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance, will fall across the vast majority of those of humanity who rejected the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lowly one who came as a servant, a suffering servant, but was exalted for the right hand of the Father, did not declare allegiance with him. This betrayal and triumph was true of Christ, was it not? Matthew 26, 3 through 4, Luke 21, 20, Matthew 24, 28, just a few references, 26, 59, and 60, just a few references in the course of the gospel, we'll study these more next week, where the uh, language of Psalm 63 becomes alive and prophetic fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. But to those who seek to destroy my life, think of Caiaphas and company, the beginning of Matthew 26, who are in the palace of the king plotting the death uh, plotting the death of Christ. They are the ones who have the privilege, the power, the opportunity, and the motive, and they seem to be successful. Little do they know that all of Christ's worst enemies will be defeated in that very act, and they themselves will ultimately be destroyed for their rebellion and taking up arms against the Son of God. They, in fact, will go down to the depths of the earth, Matthew 27, 51 through 52 talks about these moments. We see actually in the prophecy that came before Jesus' own condemnation that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, Luke 21 through 20. And then where will Caiaphas and company run and hide? Where will the elders and the priestly class and the elite rulers of this social order run and cower when The armies of Rome siege Jerusalem. The temple is destroyed. And finally, there is judgment for the rejection of the Son of God in just one generation. They will become the portion of jackals. Matthew 24, 28 tells us the places where the vultures gather will mark the strewn bodies of all of those who in their rebellion did not listen to the great word of Jesus Christ to flee when you see that moment of opportunity, but instead try to stick it out and declare holy war against the invaders and are ultimately destroyed. For those who follow the true King of Kings, however, they experience the glorious exaltation and triumph. They rejoice in God and they swear their allegiance to Christ and by Him they exalt and they watch the mouths of liars as they are stopped in front of them. Let me close with an application. There is a, an apologist who I follow. I recommend him to you, James White. He often will bring the gospel into places where most evangelicals would fear to tread. Among them mosques where he will argue for Jesus Christ as Lord, the veracity of the scriptures, the truth of the Christian religion against Muslims. There was a famous Muslim. He's since uh, died. Uh, his name was Ahmadidat. 
And if you follow any Muslim exchange with Christianity, you'll find his name coming up sooner than later. He's a famous Muslim who tried to equip Muslims to uh, be able to win ideological battles and arguing with Christians. And he had this talk he would often give, crucifixion or crucifixion, and they spelled it two different ways. Was Christ really crucified or was it a fiction? Crucifixion or crucifixion? And then he would lay out what he called, I don't know, his 20 or 40 arguments why the death of Christ was fiction. It wasn't real. It was a make-believe fairy tale made up by this small Jewish contingency that just happened to affect 2,000 years of history, but only fools believe. Well, this man would go out with all the confidence in the world and would argue this way and try to demonstrate that the word of Christ was of no value and it was just made up and a truth can only be found in the Muslim religion. His mouth was stopped in 1996. He died nine years later. He suffered a horrible stroke. It paralyzed him from the neck down. It, all of his faculties were affected, including his ability to speak and even, even his ability to swallow. For the last nine years of his life, he lived on a bed in his home, trying to encourage other Muslims to practice dawah, which is, you know, the apologetics, uh, you know, defending the Muslim faith. But when you look at that incident and how God intervenes sovereignly, you see something of a picture of what will happen to all who do not bow before the Lordship of Christ. God in his mercy allowed that man to live another nine years. If he was still alive today, what would be our message as believers to him? I tell you, what we've studied today would perfectly fit. Your voice was silenced by the sovereign hand of God, and justly so in your rebellion of him. But he in his great mercy has allowed you to remain alive. Today is the day of salvation, Achmedidat. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Declare your allegiance to the true king who has silenced you, lest you be silenced forever and cast into the lake of fire. This week, there was an election, in case you hadn't noticed. We chose the next person to be the leader of this great shining city on a hill, right? And so many people are disillusioned at these times, are they not? For many reasons. Who is equipped and qualified to lead this great land into the progressive future of you know, humanity's progressive vision of overcoming all our social ills and bringing in this great age of humanitarian triumph and we build the Tower of Babel higher by mining stones from our own Christian foundation. It's so foolish, so wicked. Well, as you saw the results come in on Tuesday night, if you were watching the faces of those who stood there in the, you know, under the glass ceiling in the rooms where they're supposed to celebrate the great win and Watch with bated breath as the returns come in and the verification of the great populace is going to usher our candidate in to be the great savior for the future of America. You saw across their faces despair, did you not? People were weeping. People were crying out. In the sovereignty of God, many naysayers were silenced this week because the rug of social security, uh, no pun intended, the rug of assurance and safety and salvation and idolatry was pulled out from underneath them. And I don't care what party you affiliate with, if you place hope in man, in whose mouth and lungs is breath, you are a fool. And God will demonstrate that. And he does so, and he did so this week. He pulled the rug 
of the future of America in the minds of the self-assured, out from underneath them, and for a moment it left them flailing. I pray they continue to flail until they find assurance in Christ alone. No nation can survive for very long without the judgment of God coming upon their head unless they confess faith in the true King of Kings, the Son of David. Every leader, be he from one party or another, must kiss, must kiss the Son, the highest measure of allegiance to a kingly rule and authority known at that time, Psalm 2, lest what? He become angry, the true king, in the way, and they just perish. Well, this week, God spoke from the heavens, as it were, in the circumstances of this nation. He held our false hope of human saviors in derision, and he laughed at us. Will we cry out to him? Will we turn to him in repentance? There are two kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 speaks of them. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And then there's a worldly sorrow that just leads to more despair. One of the best encouragements I got, I think Phil and Aaron both texted me this week, friends of theirs who are so distraught and friends of mine fall into the same category over the political circumstances in our land right now. This is a great opportunity, brothers and sisters, to turn their attention to the Lord and Savior, the ultimate sovereign, the King of kings, the one who rules in the heavens, the one to whom every knee shall bow, everyone must answer. The day of reckoning will appear for all, king or pauper. Principalities and powers are being subdued under his feet. They will be his footstool. And the only way to exalt, to triumph, is to sit with him at his right hand. And the only way that happens is when you humbly confess your sins, place your faith in his power to save, And then His resurrection will be your own. His exaltation will be your own. His glorification will be your own. His rule and reign will be your own. Without that, there is nothing. Only despair and judgment and sorrow. Reminding us today, the Word of God is reminding us today to stand with Christ and to declare Him to others. Even if we feel like we are in an exile in our own circumstances and in the context of our environment, Let us take a note, a cue from Psalm 63 to declare with assurance, no matter how difficult things get, that there is a true King of Kings. To Him we swear allegiance, and He is the authority. Ultimately speaking, He has written history. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and all things are in His sovereign, powerful hand. Let us close in prayer. O Father, we thank You for the reassuring words of Scripture for the testimony of truth therein contained, for the perennial, powerful word that never fails, withers, but only grows stronger and more relevant in a day where we're distracted by other claims to truth and authority. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would find in you and in your word great refuge this day. I pray that even more than this, that you would equip us, Lord, to offer that hope to others. I pray that in the wilderness we would worship no matter the circumstances, that we would consider your glory, your power, your steadfast love better than our own life. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.